You are on Max's Island, a podcast by Meet Max Power. On Max's Island podcast, you'll hear the lived experiences of people who choose to live life a little differently. It might be a story of when they took time out and dared to do something crazy. Perhaps they made a decision to leave it all behind and follow their dreams. Or maybe they just stopped listening to what other people thought and did what was right for them. This experience becomes a story that is part of them and one that you need to hear. So, now that you're on Max's Island, listen to the wisdom in these stories and you too will be inspired to do what you have always wanted to do. Island. I've got Steve Miller joining us. G'day Steve, welcome to the island. Hi Tony, it's good to be here. Steve, on the island we love to invite guests to tell a story about that time in their life when they did something that was specifically for themselves, may have been against the grain or was in fact a pivotal time in their life where they thought wow things are a little bit different or just something that has happened that's really influenced the way that they've gone about their life. So, Steve, have you got one of those times where there was a pivotal moment in your life? I think, Tony, if I was being honest, and you're not unfamiliar with this, it's uh, when I was very, very young, I had a couple of dream occupations in mind. One of them was to be a test cricketer, and you, uh, of all people, would know that I wasn't well-equipped for that you know, because I um, had, uh, I lacked the requisite talent to be a test cricketer, although I was a good sort of journeyman for the uh, Brentwood sixth grade, as you know. And then I thought, well, what about a rock star? And then I didn't have any um, uh, musical talent. Or I didn't have any singing talent. So I thought I had to sort of put those two dream occupations to rest. So I decided to concentrate on economics and try and carve out sort of something interesting from that, um, from that endeavour. And I don't know why it was I was interested in economics. I guess like, you know, a number of us back in that period in the late 70s, we were interested in politics, we were interested in economics, and we thought it was sort of, it was very, very topical at the time, as it, as it certainly has been uh, subsequently, but it was very, very topical at that time. And it did seem to sort of open up a, um, a number of career paths. So, you know, that was probably the pivotal moment in my life. And so, uh, as you know, I... Uh, I, I took myself off to uh, to study economics at the University of Western Australia. Interesting you talk then about the pivotal moment of being at uni doing economics because I also did economics at university with you yep. and our paths went significantly different after university. Perhaps you can tell the listeners on Max's Island why you chose a path that embraced economics, whereas I yep. chose a path that went probably away from it. 
Well, I mean, I guess you know, if I look back and I think about the people that we studied with, I mean, there was there was there was two sorts, and none's better than the other. One was you studied economics because you wanted to get a degree, and it was something that was reasonably interesting, and it wasn't a necessarily a device to have a career in that, but it was you know to earn a degree and get you sort of started on life's journey. I, I, you know, I do think, um, and I don't know why, but I do think I was sort of genuinely interested at university in the public policy aspects of economics. You know, I, I think I started at a fairly early period, maybe first or second year uni, I decided I'd probably wanted to go to Canberra. I think at the time I thought either the Department of Foreign Affairs or the Treasury. And, you know, that's what I sort of, uh, I worked toward. And I, I certainly have no regrets that, that that's the thought that sort of landed in my in my head. And, you know, this is, when going back to your original statement, you know, thinking about, you asked me to think about what was a pivotal moment in my life. I think if I had made that decision and hadn't at about first or second year uni thought that I might like to go to Canberra and I might like to work in the Treasury, um, you know, I think my my life would have been considerably different um, and I suspect perhaps not as rewarding. When I say rewarding, I, I mean for myself. You know, I've sort of, one thing I'm grateful for is that by making that decision, I think I sort of... Um, uh, put myself on a career path, and, and and by the way, the career path has taken unexpected twists and turns. You know, there's no doubt about that, and it's certainly provided no end of challenges, including you know some particularly challenging and adverse times, which we might get to. But I, I developed that interest, and so unlike you, I um, I never thought I'd be in Perth once I finished uni, and I remember getting on the plane in about February 1983, and 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 making my way to Canberra, and 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 to be fair, those of us of our vintage would know that, you know, that period in Australia's economic history was was quite important because, you know, it was it was around that time that sort of things started to happen in, in, in the economic world and in the policy world. And I was I was very lucky, extremely lucky, you know, to have, for want of a better term, you know, a bit of a front row seat to, to what was unfolding at the time. Steve, that's really interesting that you talk about that pivotal decision of going to Canberra because certainly in my case that was the reason I didn't go to Canberra because there was an opportunity to stay in Perth and you talk about the economic times obtaining employment in Perth was not that difficult at the time as well and so you could use your degree to carve a career in whatever area you you wanted to and and you certainly um, I use that to another path so the important thing was, though, is that decision to to say the future is not in WA, it is yeah. in Canberra, and that is a launching pad for whatever was to happen. And again, you know, we're, we're all different, you know, and we all just sort of, uh, we pursue what interests us, you know, and, and that was my, that was sort of following what I thought I wanted to do with my career. In fact, I arrived in Canberra thinking I'd probably be there for, you know, a good 40 years and I'd retire a public servant. No, I didn't, thankfully. But um, and, and I know that's no adverse reflection on, on people that choose that path in their career. It just didn't work out for me. But as I say, I, I, I developed that interest at uni and I got there and I got there at a great time and an interesting time and, 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 and that was all down to luck. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't my acumen. It was my good fortune uh, uh, that placed me in that position. And, and I had no qualms about it and I was accommodated to it and, you know, happy to potentially leave Perth behind forever. I didn't think I would, I didn't necessarily think I wouldn't go back, but as it turned out, I didn't. You know, at the time, it didn't 
particularly worry me. The Canberra gives you an opportunity to be in a bit of a bubble. Um, yes. We hear of the Canberra bubble and that from a political sense, but obviously also in the public service sense. Yeah. Um, now you moved around a couple of bubbles within Canberra. <laughs> Oh, look, oh, so I started at the Treasury. I mean, you're right, it is a bubble. It's a, it's a bit unique. It, it doesn't necessarily get the same perspective as perhaps other places in Australia do. And that, that can be a good thing and it can be a bad thing. It can be a bad thing, obviously, because you're not accommodated necessarily with all the challenges that people are, are facing in everyday life, particularly when you're in a policy department like the Treasury. But it can be a good thing is in your mind's not cluttered up with the emotion that sometimes might otherwise drive non-rational decisions. So once you mount, when your mind's not clouded with emotion, you, you tend to have a more sort of rational take on things. You know, you're not sort of subject to these emotional prejudices that might otherwise sort of lead to uh, adverse policy making. And I, I say this meaning what I say, but I think at that particular time, I think we were quite lucky in, insofar as we didn't have, we, we had we had some serious policy challenges and we had personnel that were political personnel and, and public service personnel that were up to meeting the challenges. I'm always reminded of uh, The Economist magazine and it said this in an editorial once and it's always stuck with me. It says... Australians do prosperity terribly, they do adversity well. And I think if you remember at that time, you know, at the end of, in the early 80s, you know, inflation was double digits, unemployment was double digits, the economy looked moribund. We were sort of a little bit lost in, you know, in the fog that sort of followed, you know, what was a tumultuous decade in the 70s. So, and I think, you know, we were in relatively not in a good position. And, you know, I think the... I think the public service recognised that, and I think the political class did too, particularly the then incoming government, but also, you know, I think on the other side of politics, uh, I think the other side of politics recognised that, you know, uh, the approaches to economic policy that we'd become used to had to change, and this included things like, you know, financial deregulation, tariff reform, fiscal repair, you know, all those sorts of things. Uh, I think there was a consensus that these became important and I think, fortunately, we had um, political personnel and public service personnel, that, as I say, that would, they could implement the requisite reforms. Did they always get it right? No. But at least they were sort of focused on the right things, just not, not, you know, not necessarily occupying the, the Treasury benches and, and riding around on the white cars and otherwise having a good time. I mean, I think they, those people wanted to use their time in Canberra for the, for, for the good. And I say that was sort of across the political class too not just the government of the day, but also the opposition of the day. You just mentioned how times were different and we compare them to now. And there's two, two things I like to make. You make the point, I recall you telling me this many, many years ago, that back in the early to mid-80s, it would cost you twelve to $1,400 to fly back to Perth. <laughs> and obviously your wages in those days, that you're talking mid-80s wages there... So huge, huge I can cost. tell you when I was on my first year, so this is 1983, I was on a salary of $15,000 a year and I, I wanted to fly back to Perth for my graduation in May, which I did. I bought what was then called an Apex fare. So this is sort of like, you know, the, the current equivalent of the ready deal or whatever. 
And I think it cost me, from memory, I think it cost me $1,500 return. This is $1,983 return. And this is when we had the two airline system and, you know, they decided between them you know, how much airfares were. It was ANSET and then TAA domestically. We don't pay that much anymore, although I know recently at least airfares have sort of gone up quite substantially. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I'll tell young people that these days and, um, you know, they roll their eyes, of course. But, yeah, no, you make a very, very, very good point. And, and the other thing that um, I can reflect personally is that um, I was pretty chuffed that through my relationship with my bank that I was able to fix my mortgage at 13.5%. You know, when others were paying 17%, I was able to get that top out, you know, which is, again, the, you thought that was, you were doing a good good job then. Took, took, took me more than a decade before I could afford to buy a house. <laughs> <laughs> so, Steve... How long were you in Canberra for? In Canberra for five and a half years. I had the good fortune to uh, have a role in the then Treasurer's office, uh, Paul Keating's office. So what he used to do or what his office used to do was employ a young Treasury staffer to more or less manage the relation, manage the paper flow between the department and the Treasurer. So, you know, I wasn't, certainly I wasn't making the decisions, not by any stretch. I was only 24 years old. But as I said earlier, what it did do, it gave me a front seat to what were some, you know, groundbreaking reforms, whether that's, you know, financial deregulation of floating the dollar, foreign banks, tax reform, budget repair, tariff reform, you know, all those, uh, superannuation guarantee levy, all those sorts of things. You know, it, it, was, it was very, very interesting for me to be able to have, a, as I say, a front row seat to how that all unfolded. So only five and a half years though in Canberra. So yeah, which is funny when I think about it because you know I was I was, I was reflecting on my earlier comments to you about how I'd decided first or second year uni that this was the role for me, and I'd assumed I'd be there for forty years, and then I went off to the LSE and did a masters, and I sort of came back and I thought, oh, <laughs> you know, this has been all very interesting, but. But the circumstances changed. And you remember when we were at uni, financial markets were never that big in Australia. And it was during that early 80s period where, where we had this period of financial deregulation that lots and lots and lots of opportunities opened up. I mentioned foreign banks, you know, lots of opportunities opened up in foreign banks, lots of opportunities opened up in fund managers. And people with economics degrees that had some experience in public policy and were relatively young suddenly became quite sought after commodities. So... You know, I was uh, offered what at the time seemed like quite a bit of money. I suspect it probably was. And so I, uh, I relocated to Sydney and joined, um, joined Bankers Trust, who were one of the, fun, uh, sorry, one of the foreign banks that were uh, led into the country in, I think, early 85. Uh, and they also had a fairly, what proved to be a fairly successful funds management arm, which attracted me to go and, um, and, and want to work for them. Did that mean that you not only entered the corporate world, but also entered the world of dealing with customers, clients, people who you had to provide advice, had to manage their money? Yeah, it did. And actually, it's interesting you say that because even though you're a public servant in a policy department in Canberra, you very rarely meet the public. You know, it gets a bit different when you go into the corporate world and the, the reason that you're there is to try and make your customers happy so they'll pay you fees or whatever 
And, you know, and, and to the extent that you're good at that, it, um, it means that potentially, you know, you might grow more wealthy. And that, well, that was a bit of an adjustment at first. You know, like I said, I've been a public servant for five and a half years. I've never sp- I've spoken to a member of the public. And now a part of this role, you know, because I, I went in as an economist, part of this role was speaking to bank clients and it did need some work to sort of overcome, I think, some not shyness but reticence about being confident enough to stand in front of a big auditorium and, and deliver an economic presentation. As we know, economics is the dismal science, so lots of, lots of, it, lots of it's contestable. And so whenever you give an economic presentation, you're giving a particular view based on your interpretation of the data. At the end of the day, you know you may be right and you may be wrong, and it's eminently contestable. So, you know, you sort of had to deal with these times when, you know, you got pushed back from the audience or, you know, some people thought you weren't perhaps that bright or uh, some people thought differently that, you know, perhaps you'd I'd, I'd, I'd raised a point that they hadn't thought of and were very appreciative of it. You know, you've got both sides of, the, uh, of, that, of that coin, but it did take some adjustment to be able to develop the wherewithal, I think, to be articulate in public and think about how you present a particular case. I imagine it's somewhat like, you know, a law student or a lawyer, a young lawyer might have to go through in terms of, you know, learning how to be an advocate for their clients, where to be an advocate for the bank, and in being an advocate for the bank or the fund manager, we had to come up with what looked to be a, a cogent picture of the relevant parameters of the economy and how they might affect particular financial variables and what our clients should do to maybe position for that. And at that stage, you're still only in your late 20s. Uh, 28, yes. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, when we look back on our careers, you go, well, you know, to be in that role. And it's, and I'll, I'll say this, though, I wasn't alone because, as I said earlier, financial deregulation really only started happening from about 83, 84, 85. And so, you know, it was a whole new world for everyone. And it was really sort of, it was people in their early to mid to late 20s that were probably best positioned to go into those sorts of entry-level jobs in that particular industry. So you'd walk in, I'd walk into the dealing room at Bankers Trust and the average age would probably be about 26, 27, 28. We all grew old together. You know, the average age went up. But I think it's just it was just because the big, not the big bang, but the rewriting of the rules sort of happened at that period and favoured people of my generation with my skill set to walk into those particular jobs. That poses the thought that in this day and age, every it's all about being mentored, being nurtured, being coached, being, you know, supported. So very much the case then there would have been a, a fair lack of seasoned people to, to mentor you and, in, in, as you rightfully pointed out, you know, a lot of new people into, into a deregulated market that was fairly fresh. Yeah. So opportunity to rub shoulders with people who could influence your career probably wasn't the, quite the same as it is today. No, but there were, you're right, there wasn't a lot of seasoned professionals, but there were one or two. Yeah. And certainly they're always very, very... Uh, very, very important in your life. I mean, the markets were a little bit, dare I say it, cowboyish at that time. You know, we were all quite inexperienced. We would have things like, you know, not seasonally adjusted current account deficits come out and the Aussie dollar would move around one or two cents. You know, you never see that these days. You know, you'd see uh, bond yields go up 
30 or 50 basis points. I remember um, when Keating made his famous Banana Republic comment, you know, things went really haywire. I wasn't in the markets then, but, you know, they're in their infancy. And so you did, you did sometimes get quite exaggerated moves in financial variables. But as we all got more experienced and more sensible and the, the sort of the cowboy elements of the, the markets were sort of marginalised, so it did get a little bit more mature, let's call it. So when you get to some of those mature stages, perhaps the expectation from customers, banks, customers, others start to increase. In your journey, and you know, particularly in those early days, ever really challenged by oh, either decisions oh. that you'd made, advice that you'd provided and all the time. And question and where you might even question yourself? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. All the time. So I started off as an economist, so I wasn't actually handling the money. Someone else was doing that. And I, uh, I finally got into a role where I, um, I was actually managing the money and positioning the portfolio. So I graduated to, to actual funds management from being an economist. And I, I remember this happened in 1994, in February 1994. And, of course, those of us in the bond market remember 1994 as a great bond market crash. And not to put too fine a point on it, I found myself frequently on the wrong side of that crash. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you learn from that experience. I mean, I think, I think uh, uh, as it turned out, there was good reasons because 94 was an aberration in, in the history of, you know, the 30-year history of bond yields from about, you know, 1990. But I found myself quite frequently on the wrong side of it. And I, I did seriously question whether this was the right, you know, right role for me. I remember going, you know... <laughs> one lunchtime for a walk in the park and sort of, you know, kicking a stone around and thinking, you know, is, is this the right job for me? I'm sort of stressed. I just had my, um, my first daughter. I, had, I did have a mortgage by that stage. You know, it was a well-paid job and I got through it and, you know, things sort of got, got better than that. But, I mean, I think the, the thing that you learn is, you know, you just what you've got to do is you've got to go back and say, why are you doing what you're doing? Um, do you do you think you're sort of approaching things correctly? And if the answer is yes, you know you you, you just you, you wear it because you, you've got to recognise you're going to have challenging and uh, challenging times. And it wasn't the last one had either, by the way. And you know we got through it, and uh, certainly in 1995 we were very 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 successful. So you know that all worked out well. But you know there were other challenges ahead. I remember when I was made head of that team in 90 end of 97. I had a very poor year in 1997 and you know i didn't quite get out to the park and kick a stone around this time but you know there was lots of sleepless nights staring at the roof thinking oh gosh you know will i have a job at the end of the year or or, or whatever and anyway we got through that again but i think the thing is various stages in in anyone's career i think if they haven't asked themselves are they really up for this or they haven't sort of had some introspective thoughts about, you know, I think they call it these days imposter syndrome. So you ask yourself whether you're an imposter and you go through that and, you know, am I cut out for this? Hopefully most of us get to the point where we think, well, yeah, we've had a bit of bad luck, but, you know, we, we think we're equipped to be able to, to do the role. And you make the case that you are equipped to be able to do the role and, and happily, I won't say I emerged unscathed, but at least I emerged from those episodes and and I think what they do is you've just got to recognise you're going to go through, you're not going to work for 40 odd years and not have particularly challenging moments in your career. It's, it's going to happen to us all. And as a consequence of those particularly challenging moments, you're going to ask yourself some really serious questions. 
And I think what you've got to tell yourself is just control the things you can control and do your best and, and just revisit what you're doing. Make sure it's right. Do a little bit of a checklist, you know, tick the boxes. And if, and if you think you're doing the right thing, then keep going. And ultimately it probably resolves itself. Uh, happily, that did happen in my circumstance. As I say, I wasn't necessarily unscathed and, you know, go on with it. But I think if I were to say, so I'd say to my daughters, for example, who are just sort of now embarking on their professional career, you're going to have challenges, you know. You're going to go through periods where you're going to question yourself. You're going to go through periods where you're going to ask yourself, am I cut out for this? And, then, and you've got to answer those questions yourself. But don't think that it's, you know, it's all beer and skittles and, and, and getting a paycheck once a fortnight or once a month and there's no stress involved because I think if you're going to be successful, you'll inevitably con uh, confront stress and confront challenges and, you know, sometimes sort of contemplate whether you found yourself in the right role. Steve, you talked about the obvious of focusing on the things that you can control and, and not worrying as much about the things you can't control. I guess the perception of the financial markets is, you know, a lot of hot-headed, high-flies, fast-paced, you know, and, and the pressure that you, like we see in the movies. So there's a, a bit, there's this impression that there are things that you can't control, in particular your master's whether they be the masters within the bank, you know, your seniors or your customers. So what was it like? Was it really like that? Were there pressures about, you know, delivering results all the time? Uh, yes, uh, delivering results, but it wasn't, you know, I mentioned the cowboy element before, and I think that's what sometimes uh, the public still has this possession that we're all sort of mini wolves of Wall Street. And I think that's a long way from the truth, particularly us boring bond guys. So I was in, I was in bond, a bond fund manager and, you know, we're pretty boring, you know. It's very results driven, but your masters will, or, or the, the people to whom you report, they're not ignorant that people run into challenges and you're not going to get everything right and, you know, uh, they're not generally ignorant of that. And so they generally will, you know, you'll generally get cuts and slack and I think as the markets got more mature as we went into the 90s and into this current century, that was more and more the case. We did have some, I did have some challenges during the very later on in my career in the GFC. And I was responsible for a, a credit fund by corporates or banks or what have you. And the company I was with at the time, a great company, uh, BlackRock, but what we had launched in Australia was um, a fund that invested in, in bank debt right on the eve. So we launched this fund in about early 2007 and then the GFC sort of struck later in the year and, you know, bank debt was pretty much on the nose. That period lasted about 18 months sort of trying to sort of uh, navigate that and I think I may have tested the patience of my bosses in New York but, you know, they, uh, they kept me on. They did ask me some fairly searing questions about various members of, uh, of the team, and it was my strong view at the time, which I said to them, that they should all stay, that if anyone was responsible for what was going on, it was, it was me as, as head of the team. So I, I didn't sort of overtly invite them to make me the sacrificial lamb, but I sort of, um, I took a punt that they had a reasonably high regard for my abilities. They had a reasonably high regard for what I was trying to achieve. They had a reasonably high regard 
but the strategies that I put in place to try and navigate our way through um, the challenges for this particular fund from the uh, from the global financial crisis. And so much so, I sort of, I think I was able to put myself up as a shield for some of the other ones that they might have, you know, perceived as weakness. So I'm actually sort of quite proud of that because a lot of those people still work there and a lot of them have gone on to have quite senior roles there. So I sort of feel, you know, I sort of feel as though that's a bit of a tick for me that during that highly challenging period where things weren't going well for us, A, I managed to navigate through it, but I did it, keeping my whole team intact and having them emerge on the other side to go on and take, you know, reasonably important roles around the globe with BlackRock. So, and in saying that, you know, I, I'm, I'm eternally grateful for BlackRock. They're a tremendous employer. Uh, I was tremendously happy to work for them. I still have an enormous amount of respect for them. But, you know, this is just, and, and it's not particular to them, these sort of set of circumstances, but this is sort of what it's like. But to go back to your question too, I, I, I do want to emphasise that successful fund managers and successful uh, investment banks generally will want to get the cowboy element out. And we're not all wolves of Wall Street. We're basically fairly boring men and women with families and kids and partners and friends. And, you know, we, uh, we go home on a weekend and go to kids' sport and do all that sort of stuff rather than, you know, go out partying on multi-billion dollar yachts in, you know, the Caribbean or what have you. Steve, as we start to wind up your little visit to Max's Island, it's been really interesting to understand the, the highs and lows. We, we obviously think of markets with highs and lows, but ever think about the people working in those environments and the highs and lows that they go through. Yeah. And you've given us a great insight into how that impacts on you and on the people and obviously then on your family, but in particular on your on your colleagues and, and your example around the, the GFC is, is a great one of um, taking the long game a little bit and, and trusting people. And yeah. we're probably at a point in, in life where we are, and, and in commercial life and in, in public life, where I think we want things to happen a little too quickly these days. We make rash decisions and don't play the long game and, and trust in not only our ability, but the ability of our colleagues and our, our peers. I think it was I think it was Winston Churchill said, who said that youth is wasted on the young. Yeah. And, you know, to your point about you only arrive at the end of your career at a point where you can, with some great deal of confidence, recognise that the long game is way, way more important than being an impatient young 20-something trying to sort of climb the greasy pole as, 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 as quickly as you can. I want to also emphasise too, I mean, it, it, it might be a very stressful role, but let's not be any under any misapprehension that, you know, we haven't been well rewarded for taking on these stressful jobs. You know, I don't want to feel as though, I don't want to, I don't want to give you the impression of going, oh, poor me, I had to manage all these challenges and, you know, I got through them and uh, isn't that good? I mean, I, I, I will readily concede that compared to the average Australian, you know, I've been very well remunerated throughout my uh, period in financial markets and funds management. So I don't want to, I don't want to appear to any listeners as though I'm, I'm pleading, uh, you know, that I've had a tough life and it's been all awful. It hasn't. It's been great. And I just wanted to highlight those challenges. And I think you've summed it up really well by saying you arrive at this point 
where you realise how important it is for the long game, how important it is to have a plan, always be ready to change that plan. You know, it doesn't have to be set in stone, but how it is to have a plan and how it is to play a long game. And it's finally, you know, probably a week or two before you retire that that sort of visits you and, you know, then you're right off into the sunset. Steve, thanks for being on the island. We haven't had too many people from the financial markets and you've put an incredibly different slant to it, a really personal slant. It gives us a real understanding of, you know, the ups and downs of, of a yep. career. But also you've put it in, in a context that I think the listeners of Max's Island will really understand and appreciate. So thanks for being on the island. My pleasure. I, I hope there's at least some interest in it. <laughs> Definitely, Steve. And, um, yeah, so maybe... In the future, we can have you back to tell us about some of the other challenges you may have had in your career, and especially, and I know that you spent a fair bit of time overseas, so um, maybe that's uh, that for another episode. So again, thanks, thanks for being on the island. No, that's great, Tony. It's my pleasure. We spoke on the bus on the way home from work. He was lost in the details of life. Each day was a blur, all work and no play, and how, how it had turned out this way. He told me his plan, a short-term escape, five weeks on the Bibbulmun track. Go it alone, no one to blame if he finished or fell by the way. Every sense was engaged, his mind was as clear as the skies. 